And first, a quick word from our podcast sponsor. FactSet delivers superior data, analytics, and flexible technology to help more than 170,000 users see and seize opportunities sooner. For over 40 years, we have given investment professionals the edge to outperform with informed insights, workflow solutions across the portfolio lifecycle, and industry-leading support from dedicated specialists. Through market changes and technological progress, we're proud to have been recognized with multiple awards for our analytical and data-driven solutions, while staying connected to our clients and each other. Learn more at www.factset.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Sustainability Story. I'm Deborah Kidd, Director with the Global Industry Standards Team at CFA Institute. And I'm so pleased to have with me today Dr. Julian Colbell. Julian is Assistant Professor of Sustainable Finance at the University of St. Gallen School of Finance and Center for Financial Services Innovation. He's also a research affiliate at MIT Sloan, where he's a co-founder of the Aggregate Confusion Project, a project about ESG ratings, and a faculty member of the Swift Finance Institute. Julian has won numerous awards for his research, which covers the real-world impact of sustainable investing. He also hosts the podcast, Innovations in Sustainable Finance. So before we get started, Julian, let me just say that I love your work. You write about so many topics that are practical and relevant to practitioners, and I love that you go on to propose actionable solutions. Uh, today, I'm looking forward to talking with you about two of those topics, which are top of the mind uh, of many investors right now, ESG ratings and impact investing. Thanks for being here. Deborah, it's a pleasure to be on the podcast. It's a great honor to have this conversation with you, and thank you so much for having me. Well, there's a lot going on in the world of ESG ratings. And there's no one better to talk to about ESG ratings than you. It's estimated that about a third of the world's AUM is managed using a sustainable investing approach. So we're talking tens of trillions of dollars. And many of those sustainable investing approaches make use of ESG ratings, which has prompted several countries and jurisdictions, including the European Union, to take a look at those ratings. And what they found are issues around conflicts of interest and limited transparency of data and methodology, among other things. So various regulations are being proposed or considered. And the UK Financial Conduct Authority currently has a consultation paper out for a voluntary code of conduct for ESG rating agencies. You've been studying ESG ratings and ESG rating agencies for years. And in particular, you co-authored a now famous piece of research called Aggregate Confusion, The Divergence of ESG Ratings, which you published in 2020. But that paper is actually becoming even more relevant as time goes by. So can you tell us, what did you learn about ESG ratings from your research in Aggregate Confusion? What I learned was not so much that ESG ratings diverge, that was something that was clear to, to many people at the time who had worked with some intensity with ESG ratings, so had looked at at least two of them next to each other. You could notice that pretty quickly. 
But then the question we really set out to answer was, why is it then that they diverge? And you could think of several reasons. And we split this. We, we say, well, one reason is what we call scope and weights. That is essentially ESG is, of course, an aggregate of many different issues. So at least it's E for environment, social for S for social and G for governance. But then within those, for instance, in the environmental pillar, you have CO2 emissions, you have emissions to water, you have toxic waste. So lots of detailed numbers that are aggregated into one big rating. Now, if you have two ratings, why do they differ? You can actually think of it in terms of student grades a little bit. I quite like that analogy. So also when you have your high school diploma, right, you get a grade point average of all the subjects that you took. And depending on which school you went to, you might get a different grade. And one reason for that is that different schools, they have a different scope. So they, there are different classes that you take. In one school, you might take physics. In another, you might have an arts class. And of course, depending on you know how you perform in these subjects, you get a different grade, depending on which subjects you graded in. The second thing is weights. So how important is the arts class versus the physics class in your, in your overall average? And that's something that's done by ESG ratings as well, of course, that they, they set a scope of what are the relevant issues and they have some kind of aggregation function to put them together. And these are things that are because what is a sustainable company is not completely defined, right? There's, there's some matter of debate. What should a sustainable corporation look like? So it's not clear how to set scope and weight. These are, this is an opinion that you can fruitfully disagree on. So that's one, ra one reason why ESG ratings diverge, is that they, they pick different subject areas and they aggregate them in different ways. And I think that's a perfectly legitimate reason to come to a different assessment. The second reason, and that's a bit more problematic, is that within a certain category, and let that be uh, emissions to water, for example, there you find quite different assessments on the same company and on the same category from different raters. So that would be the situation as a student if you go to school and in the one school you get an A in physics and the other school gives you a C. And that's something about the teacher perhaps who doesn't like you or, you know, or maybe it's a completely different style of physics that they teach in this class. Um, so it's, hard, it's, it's harder to understand why that appears, right? We would normally hope that there would be a similar assessment. And we find in the paper that that latter reason, which we call measurement, makes up for more than 50% of the overall divergence in the rating. So it is really, it is not so much a problem of how do we aggregate data and what do we find important. It is also relevant, but the main problem is actually the, the raw data underlying these ratings, that there are differences between different raters. And, and that's not so easy to solve. And that's also why we stopped in the paper just identifying the problem. So recently, you co-authored an op-ed for the Financial Times called Rating the ESG Rating Agencies, in which you had some opinions about what should be done about the rating agencies. Do you think regulation is needed? Or can the issues be addressed voluntarily through a code of conduct? Yeah, I think it's very positive that there's a push towards you know, both crafting regulation and also a voluntary code of conduct, uh, because I think everyone, the, the ESG raters themselves and the wider investment industry has realized that these are now influential institutions. It matters what they do. There are conflicts of interest, so it's important to, to look closely. And also, I think back in the days, 
ESG ratings used to be small companies, you know, with quite idealistic founders often who, who did something radically new and, and unusual at the time. Lots of idealism, of course. Now, most ESG raters are part of large financial data conglomerates, many of them owned by, by the big three credit raters. There's actually just Reprisk is one of the data providers that is still fully independent. Uh, most others have been have been bought. So they are bigger animals now. And that's also a reason why, you know, you should regulation comes more to the fore just because of size and power. Now in terms of the content, one thing is obvious, there are conflicts of interest in any rating business. And it's important that they don't derail the quality of the ratings. Right. I think all the regulation and all the also, the voluntary codes should aim for high-quality, reliable ratings. I think that's the outcome that we want. So making sure there are no conflicts of interest in the sense that company that pays a consulting fee gets a higher rating, right? that would be a, a crass conflict of interest that should be avoided. At the same time, there also should be some form of exchange between rated companies and raters, right? So that companies have a chance to learn what is it really that I should be doing. So transparency is, is important for that. And I think in general, that could be upgraded, the transparency in terms of first, the definition, what is really this rating about? There is sometimes a bit of a mix, both in terms of those who provide it as well as those who buy it, that this is on the one hand about impact, you know, how, how does how does a company affect the world in terms of environment and social issues, but then also somehow about financially material risk and, you know, just financial performance at the end. And it probably isn't both cleanly. So, so I think you ought to decide a little bit, well, not a little bit, you ought to decide which one it is and then go about measuring that. I think that distinction is quite important to make. Right. And that's where there's a lot of confusion around the ratings. What a specific rating is intended for, impact or preference or financial materiality, and how an investor is actually using that rating. On the topic of correlation, I'm going to quote a statistic from your aggregate confusion paper. You found correlations between ESG ratings for the same company ranging from 0.38 to 0.71, which is much, much lower than what we see for a company's credit ratings. And we often hear that comparison being made. So is that a valid comparison in your view? Should those correlations be similar to credit rating correlations? Well, it would be nice if they were that similar, but I think there's a couple of important reasons why they are not. And one reason is the clarity of definition, what's being measured. It's pretty clear for a credit rating. Companies can uh, go into default and a credit rating tells you something about the likelihood of default. So it's very, very narrowly defined. Whereas corporate sustainability is defined in much looser terms and all these different subcomponents. And as we talked already about how do you weight the different components, what do you even count towards it? So that's one important reason the clarity of what is being measured. But another, I think, very interesting point is that credit ratings, if they disagree, and it happens, they disagree about the future, right? They disagree about an event that has not happened yet. 
in hindsight, you can look at, you know, which cohorts of companies went into bankruptcy or went close to it and, and sort of whether credit ratings were correct in a sense of predicting that. You can check for that. And a credit rater who would be consistently wrong would exit the market, I suppose, at some point because people wouldn't trust that credit rating anymore. With ESG ratings, they actually disagree about the past or the present. They don't make a call on which company is going to have an explosion in, in their factory, but they, but they track what happened in the past. And you might say even there they disagree, right? So that is a fundamental difference. And I think this could change if there were a regulatory and mandatory disclosure regime for and I hope it's not going to be a huge set of uh, issues, but for a sort of a smartly chosen subset, you know, well measurable on, on, on the ESG front. Once you have that, you can enter this prediction game also that credit raters do, that you say, well, this is what the company has disclosed last year and the year before. We see here a trajectory and we believe this is going to continue for, for those reasons. I think that would... Give, that would bring us into a more interesting rating, which is more sort of an analysis rather than a judgment of, of the status quo in the past. So Julian, you've said previously that you think there's still value in using ESG ratings because it's very time consuming and intensive to collect and aggregate all of that information and it's expensive. So given the current unregulated state of ESG ratings and the issues around transparency and conflicts of interest, what can investors do to make the best use of ESG ratings? Yeah, I think that's a great question because for all the criticism that ESG ratings have to face, they are still very much used. And there are reasons for that. And, and I also kind of want to break a lancet for ESG raters because they harvest economies of scale. It is hard to do this analysis for a large amount of companies in a systematic way, collect all the data. So, you know, they really offer us a service in that. And there's also a reason we care about these outcomes. That's the whole reason why they exist. It's important how much water is being consumed, what the emissions are like, how people are treated in the workforce. We care about these issues and that's why these institutions exist and they, they really offer something. Well, it could be better, and uh, you know, it can evolve, but but I think that's the reason why they are there, and, and I think uh, well, I'm happy they are there. Now, to use them as an investor, I would recommend two options to go about it. The one is take that, well, do a due diligence and, you know, go really go into depth in, in, the, rating, in the rating that you're going to use, right? Convince yourself that the data is procured in a reliable way, drill down the methodology and make sure it aligns with, with your objectives or what you want to get out of this rating. Is it about impact of financial materiality? Do you use it more as a, as a first screen or is it really like really informing the investment decision in, in terms of the assumptions that you take, right? There's, there's quite a bit of nuts and bolts that you have to make sure that they fit to, you know, that it's fit for purpose. And then, but if you've identified one where you've convinced yourself that this is this is what we need, then just use that rating. I think that's that's fine, as long as you can defend why it's that one. As long as you know what you're measuring, I think that's a good approach. Another approach, which is a bit more involved, is to sort of do it in-house to say, well, we we don't actually want this prepackaged assessment. 
we want to really subscribe to a range of ESG data feeds and, and build our own rating or assessment model in-house and, and use that then in, in bespoke ways. Um, the advantage, of course, is that you're very flexible and you can really tweak it uh, in all the ways you want. The challenge can be that towards the outside, it's not going to be trivial to communicate what you're doing there and then people might be skeptical that you're you know, that you're even doing it. Maybe you just say that and, and it's hard to convince people that you're doing this seriously and systematically. So these are the two main options I see. Another area of sustainable investing where we find a lot of confusion among product intent and investor motivation is impact investing. You co-authored a paper called The Investor's Guide to Impact where you cut through the confusion and you talk about what types of investments or products actually contribute to making an impact. And you talk about a key concept of impact investing that you refer to as additionality. So can you tell us about the investor's guide to impact and why additionality is important when you're looking to invest with impact? I'm quite proud of, of that booklet, the investor's guide to impact. I, I think we really uh, tackled a big question and then came away with some, some useful answers. This is really a guide for investors who want to change the world with their investment. And I completely recognize that not everybody wants to do that. But for those who do, this is an interesting resource. Additionality is actually a very simple concept. And, and if you think of impact, you know, as something you want to achieve a change in whatever it may be, and you want also to be sure that ch that change happened because of what you did and not just something that would have happened anyways, right? You want to be effective in, in what you do, right? Th that would be sort of the, it's, it's a high bar to pass, but, but that is for me the idea of, of having impact, right? And if you translate that to investing, it, it, it has two steps. And one is companies have lots of activities and, and lots of impacts and, and they can shape or choose their activities in such a way that their impact overall is more positive, you know, maybe less emissions or more trained trainees, right? You, you can do something as a company that then has consequences out there. And an investor, you are one step sort of further down the chain. So I think what's a bit of a fallacy is to say, well, I'm invested in a bunch of companies that all have beautiful impacts because you'd have to ask yourself, well, if you weren't invested in those companies, then probably somebody else would, and they would have just the same impact. So what do you really bring to the table? So there we introduce this concept of investor impact, where investors think about, okay, what is the change in the companies out there that I can trigger as an investor, and how do I go about that? And then we just rely on a bunch of other people who've worked on this before us and summarize and put together what, what they found in sort of different asset classes and mechanisms, how, you know, how we think based on evidence is, is the best way to go forward. So that's a really important point that you make, that investing in companies that do business as usual is quite different from investing in companies where you can actually facilitate a different outcome or change. You referred to the Investor's Guide to Impact as an evidence-based guide to give investors some tools to make informed decisions for positive impact. Can you share with our listeners what types of tools they can use to invest with additionality? 
Yes, we essentially come away with with three key recommendations. Now, if you are one of these investors who wants to have impact, we would say the first thing is to see if you can, if you have room in your strategic asset allocation to put money towards sort of high risk, high promise ventures. This is not for everyone, of course, this is very risky, but if you can afford to take that risk, it might really make a big difference if you can find and back young companies who develop technologies that may ultimately have a profound impact. Right. I'm I'm thinking of smart technologies in the realm of climate change, you know, massive efficiency gains, for example, but also education tech companies, right? These these sorts of companies who through innovation really improve a lot of people's lives. If you can back those and help them survive or even get started, that's a great option. The second mechanism is shareholder engagement mainly. So that works in, you know, in all public equity portfolios, even even credit securities, it can also work. The idea is essentially that you use your voice as a shareholder or investor to try to steer companies on a more sustainable path. I think it's not possible or very, very unlikely to completely transition companies in, in that way or even entire industries. But but within the, the, the business that they're in already, there are often many small steps and useful measures that companies can take. Some take them already, others perhaps don't. And, and sort of this diffusion of best practices, that's, I think, that something very important that you can achieve through both shareholder engagement, but also then in a way, back up your voice with some threats and saying, well, here, here are sort of the base, like the, the minimum that I expect and you have two years time to to do that and otherwise I'm out. I think that uh, that can be useful to, uh, to reinforce that. But yeah, shareholder engagement, and that's something where we have quite a bit of empirical evidence that, that this is actually working. So, so that's an important mechanism because almost anyone can do that. There's not a great risk that you take on in addition can delegate that, you know, we shouldn't expect that to save the world all on its own, but I think that can really make a contribution that shouldn't be discarded. And then the third mechanism is the most tentative, we would say. We we don't see a lot of hard evidence that this is working, but of course, all investment takes place in a surrounding of regulation, cultural norms, and, and so forth. So it can be important, or it is important to yeah, to also use your influence you have in that realm. So just policy making and legislation is important. So for example, if you say, oh, I'm excluding this industry because I really, I can't invest in it. Somehow this may be ethical reasons. You just feel yuck about it. You don't want to invest. That's great. That industry is probably not going to suffer a whole lot from that. They continue what they're going to, what they're doing just without you. So in order to make this relevant, I would advise people to then also talk about that. So not just divest, but kind of sell and tell, you know, write an op-ed, talk to your colleagues about it, why you made this decision, just sort of make it, make a point out of it. And then this may become relevant in sort of indirect ways, but really start to address the, the cause of the problem that you're seeing there. So there are ways of making an impact that are available to pretty much any investor if they're determined to do so. 
I found it really interesting to hear that there is evidence that shareholder engagement does work, even in a public equity portfolio, because I know that topic has been debated for some time now, and there's always been a lot of concern about impact washing. So where can our listeners find the Investor's Guide to Impact, as well as your other research? So that my research, I'm active on, on LinkedIn. So whenever I have something new, I'll, I'll post about it there. And then there is a nice repository called SSRN. So for most researchers in at least the social sciences, you'll find all their papers free of charge if you navigate to their author page, to my in that case, on SSRN. So you'll, you'll find everything there, including uh, the aggregate confusion paper and can sustainable investing save the world and, and a few others. The latest paper that we've run uh, is an experiment. It's called, Is Sustainable Investing a Dangerous Placebo? There we explore this thesis that potentially sustainable investing, the whole idea is counterproductive because, you know, the impacts of it, and I mean, that's also something that I would say they are not clear in many cases and we we don't know how large they really are so i mean maybe they are there but are they really moving the needle is that going to be enough right and, and then there's this this thesis that this may be counterproductive because it distracts people essentially from the things that would really matter which would in the case of climate change be perhaps just just a carbon tax right that's so economists would clearly say well that's that's the first best solution why don't we do that well it's politically hard to achieve as we saw so we ran an experiment where we let people invest and uh, the treatment group, they had the opportunity to invest in a climate fund. And then in the second stage, we used a referendum that we had here in Switzerland last June on an actual climate law. So there was a real election about to be held. And we asked people if they which camp they preferred, pro or against the law, and if they wanted to donate part of the money that they made in the experiment towards one of the two campaigns. So we wanted to see whether choosing the climate fund would erode people's willingness to support the climate law. But we found that it does not. So people seem to be quite stable in their views there. And, and, and they do not see these as a substitute sort of sustainable investing and sustainable regulation. They are morally consistent, if you will. They, uh, if, if they think this is an important issue, they do one thing and also the other which I think is a, is an important finding for, for this entire field because that would indeed be a huge problem, right? If, if sustainable investing, the whole idea that, you know, you can have a positive impact through investing then demotivates people from taking political action, which is, of course, also extremely important. Yes, and that's a really interesting topic to explore. So thank you for sharing that with us. And unfortunately, we are out of time. So, Julian, I want to thank you very much for being our guest today on the sustainability story. Thank you. Well, yeah, it's it's been a real pleasure, and and indeed, there's more to be come. We, I mean, we keep doing research at MIT in the aggregate confusion project, and back home in Switzerland, I got funding for my own little uh, research group, and under the heading of the Investor Impact Lab. We're going to explore many more questions that are relevant to these things we've spoke about in the future. So maybe I can be back someday and tell you more. Well, congratulations on that. And yes, absolutely. We'd love to have you back. We'd love to hear about the Investor Impact Lab. 
And your research has always been so important for sustainable investing practitioners. So thank you. You're most welcome, Deborah. Thank you so much for having me.